and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. Friend of our fellow podcast, Oh God, What Now?, David Allen Green, always says that constitutional law should not be interesting. It should just bubble on efficiently behind the scenes. But these are not normal times. Joining me today is a woman who's made it her mission to explore complicated points of law and Brexit. To the rest of us, Joelle Grogan. She's a lecturer at Middlesex University and the creator of Sticky Tricky Law, which explains legal concepts and processes through the medium of post-it notes. Joelle, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Or in here, over here. I'm not sure what to say in the context of a bunker. <laughs> down here. Yeah. Down here. Half a week down and weeks ago. What new skill are you crushing in lockdown to? Oh, that's a good question. I think I know what I'm not doing. Uh, so my sourdough starter in lockdown 1.0 quickly failed. So I think the skill I want to develop is what to do with 12 kilos of flour that have not been used. Make proper bread. That's my advice. I used to have a sourdough starter. And I, know I was wondering I if adult Play-Doh is still a thing. Yeah. You're an academic lawyer, and that means you think about law rather than actually practicing it. Um, that's actually the route Baroness Hale took to the Supreme Court as it happens. So, you know, great examples and so on. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Having me and uh, Baroness Hale in the same sentence is probably the highlight of my week. So thank you, Ross. <laughs> before Brexit and before the constitutional upheavals of recent years, what drew you to this area of the law? I, another fantastic question. I'm not only calling it a good question because it's requiring me to think about the answer. Honestly, when I started studying law, I, I always found it quite amusing that we have this invisible system that determines so much of our life and is so powerful and, and also so esoteric. I mean, the average person is not going to know what exactly the rule is regarding transfer of property until it smacks them in the face. But I think as I went on and went on through far too many degrees and never really left university, I realized something very, very important, which is there is such incredible power in law that there must be limitations to it. There must be limits to what government can do, to what prime ministers can do, to what, what we can do with law. But also, and just as important, ordinary people, we as ordinary people, must understand it and be able to understand it and be able to access it to access justice so i think this this really comes across my my two my two great loves that's that's an incorrect way of describing my my work i really hope my husband never listens to this first it, it is sticky tricky law it's it's trying to explain law as as accessibly as possible in a way that that's funny because again i find so much of this very amusing but secondly in this probably is the real answer to the question. Uh, the core of my research, my, my career, my work is entirely focused on the rule of law, foundational constitutional principle that's not only here in the UK, but in, in all democratic legal systems. So when I look at those big constitutional questions that are facing us, I look at it through the perspective of the rule of law. What can we do to guarantee that the certainty, the clarity, the transparency, the, the value of law, what can we do to ensure that we abide and live by the rule of law? Well, talking about the rule of law, let's talk about prorogation, which was a hot topic a year ago, I'm sure you'll remember, <laughs> in those lazy, crazy days of 2019. 
Johnson prorogued Parliament and the Supreme Court said it had been illegal to do so. Now that judgment has bedded in and we've had time to think about it, just how important was it? It was at the time, I vividly remember standing outside the Supreme Court getting wet for four days, but at the time it was a constitutional earthquake. Since then, a lot of the the consequences are, are still being felt, but the consequences almost in a legal, uh, rather political way, not just a legal way. In terms of the constitutional earthquake that it was, it was the Supreme Court's coming forward and saying in the most powerful public and definitive way possible that parliaments, that the actions of parliaments, not just acts of parliaments, are supreme, putting parliaments before governments. That's an incredibly important constitutional statement in and of itself. But we're still seeing, almost quietly bubbling along uh, behind COVID, this political uh, aftershock that, that is still being felt in the form of the government now looking at judicial review, looking at the limitation of judicial review, trying to ensure possibly that such a case never comes before the Supreme Court again, which from my simple rule of law perspective in and of itself is, is quite concerning, but we'll have to see what this independent inquiry into judicial review and administrative law actually says. Had there ever been in British history such a clash between judges and the government as we saw back then, and as I suppose we're seeing now as when you talk about judicial remo- uh, review? I need to emphasise that we have not seen the kind of constitutional earthquakes. I know I keep calling it an earthquake, but it was a constitutional earthquakes, as uh, David Allen Green said just at the beginning of the programme, and I've seen him saying quite a few times, constitutional law should never be interesting. Uh, looking at back at history, we, we don't have those similar situations. We can look back to, I think, the late 14th century, when a group of uh, judges called a parliamentary committee both invalid and traitorous and were promptly banished to Ireland, actually, by Richard II. We, we didn't quite have, even if we did have enemies of the people in the media, we didn't quite have banishment or threats of execution with our our current Supreme Court. So I'm very happy about that. We've come a long way. But all this to say, throughout history, we do have these punctuation points of the division of powers, the separation of powers, these great constitutional, often conflicts. We saw this in the Civil War. We saw this in the, we saw this in the, the Restoration. We saw these big moments of conflict between who exercises power And what limitations are there, are there, and should there be on the exercise of that power? These are not new questions. What's new for us is that it's come so often and so at so much a foundational and foundational level in the UK as it is now. We have never questioned the basic, basic elements of our constitution as often or as a public a way as we are doing right now. Now, we don't in this country tend to talk much about the separation of powers. It's much more salient an issue in the US. Why do you think that is? In the UK, we don't have as clear a distinction, at least for a public-facing way, at least in a generally known way, between the different powers, the different branches of power. So in the US, there's a very clear distinction between what powers the Senate has, what powers the 
the uh, House of Representatives have, what power the Supreme Court has, and also what power the president has. The conversations that we often hear about the Constitution are far more in the vernacular. It's far more everyday that people would speak as to their constitutional rights, the rights that they have as regards government, the rights that they have as regards themselves. We don't have the same conversations here, very simply because we don't have a codified constitution. We don't have as clear a distinction between government and parliament to the ordinary person on the street. And I count myself in this for an embarrassingly long amount of time. They wouldn't be able to distinguish between what the government is and what parliament is. They're basically almost synonymous to, to a lot of people. So we don't have the same questions of the separation of powers because that, that language, that, that system is, is not what we have here. It's, it's not similar. It's not familiar. I want to talk a bit about the Human Rights Act, talking of rights, because the government isn't very keen on it and wants to, in its words, update it. Which bits need updating in the government's view? I understand uh, by earlier comments, and I also understand by the, the last manifesto referencing the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights, that it's essentially about limiting vexatious claims, uh, limiting these, oh, what were they called, lefty lawyers? I can imagine the version of updating that we'll see is a lot to do with how we limit rights, limit ordinary people's rights, limit their capacity and their ability to go to court, to have access to justice and protect their rights, which, and probably no surprise considering I'm a keen advocate of the rule of law, is deeply concerning in and of itself. All this to say, we don't know what's going to be updated, but I'm very curious to see what will be. The Human Rights Act basically takes the European Convention on Human Rights and transposes it into UK law. And signing up to the convention, it's a prerequisite to join the EU. Obviously, we don't talk about rejoining the EU because there are no Remainers now. <clears throat> However, if we diverge from it, we wouldn't have a chance of rejoining, would we? And do you think the cha changes the government wants to make might do that? Another excellent question. And I'm delighted you asked that because it gives me the chance to emphasize something which I need everyone listening to know and remember, including my students, which fundamentally is that the European Convention on Human Rights has nothing to do with the European Union. It is not a law of the European Union. It is not part of the European Union. Please, please, if I ever see again in, in media or in uh, my students' exams, that the ECHR comes from the EU, I will cry. But all this to say, and to, to give a proper answer to the question, the, in order to join the European Union, and we can now look to the very helpful Article 49, TEU, that's how you join the European Union, the European Union requires a very, very high standard of rights compliance. We literally see uh, representatives of the EU going into countries and evaluating their legal systems, evaluating how high their compliance mechanisms are with the protection of fundamental and human rights. One of the, the ways in which they have traditionally checked for a high compliance with human rights is whether or not the member state is, whether or not the potential or the candidate state is a member of the Council of Europe 
and whether or not it has incorporated the ECHR into its domestic legal system. Were the UK to withdraw from the Council of Europe and remove the ECHR or revoke the Human Rights Act and take out any degree of uh, application of the ECHR within the UK, well, that would be a very strong indicator that there is not a commitment not only to international human rights, but also to domestic protection of human rights. If the UK were ever to apply to rejoin the European Union, this would be a very strong indicator for many of those people checking that there may not be the same commitment to protection of rights. All this to say, there's a lot of things that are would need to be changed and would need to develop were the UK to consider rejoining the EU. But one of the most important things that the EU does check for is this commitment to human rights, also to other foundational values, to the rule of law, to democracy, and to equal protection. I realize that's a very long answer to a very short question, but the simple answer is, unless you can establish a clear protection of human rights, you don't have a lot of choice of rejoining the EU. I'm a trustee of a charity called Each Other, which emphasises the positive role human rights play in society. And when someone wants to join us in some capacity, we ask, why do you think people dislike the concept of human rights? How do you explain that? Is it solely down to the media's portrayal of it? Or is there anything else going on? As a first point, I'd love to hear what the answers you hear are. (laughs) From, we, uh, well, oh, quite vague. Um, and sometimes they say, oh, well, you know, the media doesn't like it. And people don't, uh, people get, uh, one of the most common ones is people get resentful when they think that other people have human rights, but they can't exercise their own. I think you have exactly put your finger on it. There's a strong sense that's no doubt been emphasized by a certain element of the media that these human rights are for the undeserving few, or in fact, they're only a tool by nasty lawyers to try and stop things from happening. One of the the great tragedies from my perspective is we don't remember that human rights are for all of us. We are living in an environment that guarantees and is guaranteeing rights. Every time we go to vote, every time we go to a local council, Everything we do has and does exist in a bubble of protection of our ordinary rights. But the reality is that while we don't think about things like, say, Grenfell or the the rights of soldiers' families or the rights of of those in care homes, we actually only see the, the extreme stories, the stories where often maligned and often misrepresented, are giving a view of human rights as something that is stopping government, something that is stopping law, that is stopping progress, that somehow others and and undeserving few are getting benefits that are not being given to the ordinary person, that are not being given to you and I. And the tragedy there is we forget, we forget rights that are protecting us. We forget the reality in the face of a skewed version of an illusion. COVID-19 has meant an enormous amount of new law, and you've been looking a lot at the process of making that. And you've pointed out the overwhelming majority of new COVID laws have come into force without any parliamentary scrutiny. 
They include offences which incur a £10,000 fine, which is absolutely enormous to most people. Is that justifiable, given the urgency with which government has to act in this situation? Simply at this stage, no. We are 10 months on from the declaration of a global health emergency by the WHO in January. Even though it feels like 20 years, I give that credit. But we know so much more about how the virus is spread. We know so much more about how to limit the spread of the infection. We know so much more. We also, and this is not only my research and what I do, but we know so much about how globally what is successful in responding to the virus. When I say successful, I'm just talking about legal measures. I'm talking about the policies that governments throughout the world have adopted, which are successful. And what we can see is that policies and laws and measures, which are based on certainty, which are based on transparency, which are based on coordination, and very importantly, based on scrutiny, are better. They lead to lower transmission rates. They lead to better compliance. They heighten public trust, which is essential, which is absolutely essential to responding to this virus. So for me, when I look at the justification of, oh, it's an emergency, we must introduce measures with little scrutiny and even less capacity for the ordinary person to understand them, this is all the things that we're doing wrong. These are bad practices that we should not be continuing. How does the way we handle these kinds of laws compare with other European countries? Do they have health sectors effectively who can sign legislation as as we do? I'm going to emphasise first that we have a huge divergence of reaction right across Europe. But we do have some very common elements, some common, very good practices. And one that I'm going to highlight immediately is Finland. And I will, I will keenly, keenly, keenly promote Finland as being one of the, the best responses to COVID-19 globally, along with New Zealand. But I recognize New Zealand is not part of Europe, despite how much we want it to be. Finland uh, very, very quickly and had a very early reaction, which as we know is a very good thing. The earlier you respond, the earlier that you introduce very clear measures, the better. But what they also had, which I loved as, as someone who's now spending all of their time staring at a computer screen, is that they had online scrutiny of legal measures. They invited uh, external experts, not only from the scientific community, but also from the legal community, from the health community, and very, very broadly understood, to look at the measures that were to be introduced and to give feedback on it, to essentially scrutinize online, in a blog actually, in almost real time law that was being made. This is fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. This this real connection between the rules that are being made at very high level and their human response, that their their human impact. So in terms of what the UK has not done in comparison with a great majority of the rest of Europe, and I should also clarify that I'm talking about England here because one of the interesting things that COVID-19 responses exposed is that health is a devolved competency, that it's up to Scotland, it's up to Northern Ireland, and to an extent, it's also up to Wales to do their own thing. 
But one of the, the realities that has been exposed in terms of the UK's response to the COVID-19 pandemic as compared with its closest neighbours, compared with, with Ireland and France and uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, is how slowly England has been responding. If we look at March, it was two weeks after France and Ireland had, had essentially entered national lockdown while we were still having Cheltenham. Even now, while we entered national lockdown on the, the 4th of November, a great majority of EU countries had already introduced very restrictive measures for at least a week or even two weeks. When infection is so prevalent, early response, early measures are the most important. The earlier you respond, the less time you spend under lockdown, the less restrictions you ultimately have. Let's talk a bit about the US because it's on everybody's mind right now. If Joe Biden had won a really resounding victory, a blue wave, if you like, there was talk of reforming the way the Supreme Court is appointed and not quite packing it, but basically ensuring that the balance balance that Trump had put in place was, was reversed. That probably won't happen now. But would it have been possible? Would it have even been desirable? And excellent question as to the nature of the Supreme Court in the US, which I need to emphasize just in case uh, some of the arguments that we hear in, in the US media start to be picked up here. It's a very, very different way of appointment. It's a very, very different system. We don't have the politicization of judges here in the UK that exists in the US, where there is such an extreme and strong divide between Supreme Court judges. I, I need to emphasize that. We have very, very keen political independence that I'm very keen to support here in the UK. But in the context of the US, I think we're seeing, and we will continue to see both in terms of how the law and policy plays out, but again, this extreme division between the powers of presidents and the powers and responsibilities of the Supreme Court, and also the powers and responsibilities of Congress. I think it was very unlikely in all events for there to be such a huge, significant reform of the Supreme Court, even had Joe Biden won with a very, very significant majority in the presidential election. What we would have also have to have seen is a very huge majority in the Senate and uh, in the House of Representatives. We would have need to see a very huge wave of support on that issue, on that issue of reform of the Supreme Court. I also need to flag this as a very sensitive topic globally, because, and again, I'm not saying that this is applicable in the context of the US, it's not necessarily applicable in the context of the UK, but we've seen a lot of governments throughout the world using the guise of judicial reform, trying to, again, improve and cheapen access to justice and get rid of all the, the bad ways that courts work and the bad ways that courts function. But we've seen this in so many countries as a way of, of consolidating power in the executive, giving power to government alone. We've seen this in many would-be autocrats and autocratic countries trying to essentially use judicial reform as a way of taking control of the Supreme Court or constitutional courts. I'm, of course, referencing Hungary and Poland here right now. So, to my mind, while the question of what courts do is very, very important, we should always be discussing this, we should always be thinking about it, but judicial reform, because you think that the court is too political, is a very sensitive question that 
in many cases can only lead to a further division of the courts, a further assumption, an entrenched assumption that courts are not independent. And to my mind, again, I always rest on the rule of law here, we must always, as a population, as citizens, as a country, as a democracy, we must always believe and know in the independence of the law that if I go to the court and if I ask for a legal question to be decided, that I know that it's not with political intent and it's not with political interpretation. All this to say, I think it's unlikely that we'll see such significant judicial reform in the US with a Biden presidency. Joelle, thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and you'll get our enduring gratitude too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>